0: we are live hello everybody and welcome to season two episode five of history's greatest idiots the show in which we delve through the corridors of history and bring you the craziest most insane and stupid decisions ever made by humans so that you can learn from them and never repeat the mistakes again but who are we kidding They're mistakes they happen and we love them because it gives us material fuck it content's (laughs) amazing uh (laughs) Joining me as ever is my amazing, amazing co-host, Derek. Derek, how are you doing, my man?
1: I'm doing fantastic. I'm all energized and ready to go, despite being super tired.
0: Yeah, I get that as well. I think <laughs> it's an old thing that um, wrestlers used to do the night before an event. This is just an excuse to drink. But basically, they, they a lot of them in the 90s would go out drinking the night before a pay-per-view. And their reasoning was... If we go out drinking, you're sharper when you are hungover and tired because you have to focus. Whereas if you're like comfortable and you've had a good night's sleep, you're like, you're really relaxed. Whereas if you're stressed and exhausted, (laughs) you're more likely to focus. I just think it's an excuse to go out and get drunk myself. it sounds like
1: one. I don't know about you, but I'm usually a sloppy, unfocused mess when I'm hungover. So if
0: I get less than eight hours, you fucking forget it. Like I'm having a nap at lunchtime. I'm having a <laughs> European lunch break right there. I'm just like falling asleep for an hour and a half. Forget whatever works going on. So yeah, but that's I mean that's as we're like in our forties, so you know, it's just the way of the world. So how's stuff over in Arizona?
1: Ah, uh, it's it's not bad uh baseball started back up for my son they're into awesome. the varsity season he's Great. actually gotten to pitch some uh innings
0: he's doing Dingers. well so it's awesome.
1: yep. good to yeah. hear how about, um, it's, how about things
0: there things over in the west midlands of england are rather good i've the builders are coming back in this coming week again um we're having a new so we've got um kind of a flat roof on what were the outbuildings which are now a utility room and downstairs shower room Um, we're having that redone because like, it's like the the roof's 20 years old at this point and it's like starting to go a little bit so we want to make sure it's weatherproof and stuff is it staying flat? it's going slightly sloped so uh, we're going to put a little bit of a pitch on it just to make it a little bit easier on on us but um, also um, while we're there we're going to get the builders to drill through because they forgot to do something. We wanted to have like, um, there's these things in the UK where you have very old Victorian thing where you would have a a, a kind of a drying rack on the ceiling, which you could lower by ropes and pulleys. And it's just like a series of beams that were locked together by like uh, a metal thing in the middle. And you'd hoist it up and things that hang above the fire. And then you'd hoist it down to get them off and stuff. So we were going to have a modern day version of that, but they forgot to put it in. So they're going to kind of make tiny little holes Either side of where the the beams in the ceiling are, so that we can attach the thing to them without going into the stud roof. You know, so oh okay, it's a whole construction thing. I, I just I just pay people to do shit, and I don't really <laughs> know what half of it means. It's like going to a mechanics I, my car's getting its MOT on Wednesday. It's getting its yearly service, so it can be road legal. And they could tell me literally anything. The, is wrong with this car and I would have to believe them because they're mechanics. What, what the fuck do I know that they don't? You know, so it's like, yeah. They could literally you could, tell You could always a, YouTube it. I could. I could in the moment but at that time, you know, they're so convincing. You know, it's like, <laughs> oh, you need £900 to fix the filters that have been destroyed in a freak space mystery accident (laughs) The quarks have come through the atmosphere okay yeah that happens all the time okay sure well it does Um, yeah them quarks are always messing up filters oh yeah they really fuck with your engine um so, (laughs) so that's that's really what's going on here but um we're trying a little bit of a different format here this week uh something derek's proposed and i'm really interested to see it so derek please tell us about your idiot for this episode okay so
1: the guy that i have today was because i was watching netflix documentaries as i do as most of my people tend to be um <laughs> dirty dirty money is this really good series of, about you know financial crimes and and things and it's so a,
0: good it's a so few people
1: good. i've covered uh actually came from there even though i hadn't seen it until this last week <laughs> wow <laughs> so um this guy, though, is an mm. American businessman that was born okay. in Kansas City, Missouri, right, and grew up there. Um, they have him listed, and this is the, this is a weird thing uh, as a, a race car driver, and it, it goes back and forth every now and again on his Wikipedia page because Wikipedia, you know, as it is, you edit it edited it and-
0: by everyone.
1: And I feel like he might have some people that go in and edit his stuff, but it's stayed businessman now, but okay. also racketeer, loan shark, and you know amateur racer now. Of course, yes, because <clears throat> you, you've got to get paid for that shit to be a
0: professional, of course. Um, I got him on, on my radar,
1: though, because of the whole loan shark loophole mm. fraudster guy thing. Sure. It has nothing to do with his racing in Le Mans. He didn't get lost in any deserts.
0: Oh, that's such a shame. We could have had an American Mark Thatcher. That would have been hilarious. Holy shit! <laughs> <laughs> um, so
1: the guy's name is Scott Tucker,
0: and oh, that sort of rings a
1: bell. Hmm. He, okay. he he actually went to prison in
0: 1991,
1: right, for mail fraud and false statements. Oh, but what what him got what him what got him into trouble here? later on was when he started his online business, AMG services. Okay. That business went in and made payday loans. I don't know if you guys ever had those.
0: (sighs) Yeah. We've still got them now. It's a big problem.
1: We, it seems like they were bigger in the
0: early two thousands to when everything fell apart. I think that's it. Like I, I seem to remember around about 2000, well, 2009 onwards for about five years. And actually a friend of mine can attest to this. Um, a lot of big stores closed down because obviously the financial crash and they just went out of business. And a lot of like pawn shops, cash gold, um payday loan shops opened up. And also, this is interesting, my friend at the time worked for a large national bingo company, if you can believe it with bingo. I know it's a big business. All of a sudden <laughs> they started raking in the money because people were... Like they go to these places with like five pounds, they buy five books or whatever it is they get. And they'd have a drink, they get some food, they stay there. But like in times of financial hardship, it's weird that like gambling and payday loans and cash for money and all that. It's like people need cash, right? But these businesses cross, like appear and they are specifically designed to fleece people out of as much of it as possible, despite the fact they have nothing. Yeah. You know, so. And that's
1: the thing that I think. I mean, personally, I had payday loans and mm. I was victim to like multiple at a time. Yeah. I won't claim that I was one of the people that were like taken advantage of. I mean, mm. I was preyed upon and the, yeah, a, a lot of that money goes in there, really. Was, yeah. One, and it, I knew what I was getting into. Like, yeah. Most of the people in this case didn't know that they were getting into a loan. Where it was just a rollover free, there was no interest. It was just you know ninety five bucks, ninety five bucks, ninety five bucks. after four, we're gonna just start charging you a whole bunch of money because now you have yeah. to start paying it back. yeah exactly um, the The reason that I continued to want to cover this guy is because. Mm-hmm in dirty money, he does all of these interviews and his family does these interviews and he plays the victim really well. Like this overzealous government is coming in here and it's taking wow. all of my Ferraris. It's seized up <laughs> all of my uh, assets. They've closed down all of my banks. Uh, I can't get a bank wow. account. I can't get a job. Uh, I, I, I have to live in this mansion free cause I still <laughs> get to stay here, but uh, everything's seized. Uh, oh, oh! What a fucking hardship. And no. I, I, I guess uh, I wandered off. I feel bad <laughs> for no, him, no, no. but yeah. at the same time, the complaints that he has happen to be mm. the same complaints that are the reason why his customers existed.
0: They couldn't sure. get a bank account. Yeah, and-
1: tight on money yeah
0: they couldn't get a job That you know that things had fallen apart for them maybe or yeah so basically he is experiencing what his customers you know quotation mm-hmm. marks did but on a far lesser scale because he still has a fucking mansion so yes
1: yeah um
0: <laughs> Jesus.
1: I'm not sure how he got to start a business after being in prison for mm. felony counts. I know most yeah. of the people that I know that are felons don't run out and uh start businesses, but he started this online business in 2001, AMG Services, doing payday loans. Right. Um he generated over 3.5 billion dollars in revenue. Oh, uh, just from June uh, 2008 to June of 2013, jeez, it's insane. It's the the stats on it is that he made loans to 4.5 million Americans, and he was able to do this even mm-hmm. in states where the payday loans were illegal because the high interest loans are illegal because mm-hmm. he found a loophole. And that's right. another reason why I'm covering him, because I hate people that get away yeah. with being assholes because they found a loophole. Just because yeah. you can do something doesn't mean you should do it. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, him and his brother started that business and then ventured online with these loans into mm-hmm. states where they couldn't do it by creating a licensing sort of agreement with Native American tribes, because
0: Native okay. American tribes are sovereign that's right yeah so there's like tax exemptions and stuff like that so
1: also the state laws don't apply to sovereign Um, uh, federal lands only federal laws apply and there were no payday loan laws regulating um Mm. interest or fees sure so people in like colorado and nebraska were getting these loans online at super high interest rates even though their government in their local areas tried to do the right thing to make sure that they couldn't fall victim to it. Mm. They fell victim to it anyway because Scott Tucker and his brother and a business partner went to a couple of different Native American tribes in Oklahoma and some Mm -hmm. other places and got them to license it out. So they filtered their online payday loan companies through the tribal entities. So, So... gross they skated around state lending laws that way. Um, The big, like the big thing on it (laughs) yeah, was they were actually running it like a business and they didn't think they were doing anything wrong. They were skirting these loopholes and they were hiring all kinds of people. And generally people were even happy to, to work there.
0: Yeah. It's, it's it's weird how, you know, when you run something with an air of legitimacy, it sort of validates the business for certain people, right? The, I don't know if you've noticed this, and this is just complete tangent, right? Um, have you seen uh, the new show that's out? I don't know what it's on in the States. It's on Disney Plus over here, of all things. The Dropout. Really? Yes, I've been watching that. The It's fucking brilliant. Yeah. I'm like, oh, I don't remember when Lev told me about that. <laughs> yeah, Elizabeth Holmes and her weird fake voice. Um, And Theranos, so a number of people within the business at varying levels, like engineers, chemists, mm-hmm. e- executives, all knew that it was bullshit and fake and couldn't work and wouldn't work and were there for years. But because they had health insurance, because they were getting paid, you know, blah, 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 And because the company kept on bringing in money and it had structure and Mm -hmm. people in positions like corporate this and manager of this. And like it gave it an air of legitimacy, despite the fact it is one giant con. And I I urge everyone out there to watch the dropout. It's fucking amazing. Amanda Seyfried is unbelievable as Elizabeth Holmes. Also, Stephen Fry is heartbreaking um, as Ian can't remember his second name, uh, particularly as uh, his character, spoiler alert, um, commits suicide. Stephen Fry survived a suicide attempt two and a half, three years ago now in real life. So yeah, that's that's dark. Um, Stephen Fry, by the way, Renaissance man, everyone should read up about him. He he does everything, director, writer, actor, com- comedian, musician. He can do everything. Uh, but no, this is beside the point. So what I'm talking about is an air of legitimacy to any operation. Let's call it that, right? Like, mm-hmm. Even Al Capone, right, must have had accountants. So you have an official heir of something, it lends it legitimacy, and after a while, people buy into it as a real thing, despite the fact that it's probably breaking the law, like this guy and his brother.
1: Right. Which is crazy. It, it, they carried on from 2008, like I said, until uh, 2012, wow. when the Federal Trade Commission filed a civil suit against AMG services saying that they engaged in illegal business tactics. Well, yeah. (laughs) And then in 2014, the U S grand jury subpoenaed the AMG services as part of a criminal probe Mm -hmm. looking into possible violations of statutes of wire fraud, money laundering Mm -hmm. and racketeering. So this guy's trying to be a mobster without the mob. And mm. that gets you into trouble because the mob at least yeah. has the mob to protect him from the government who does it. Yeah, the like
0: mob has guns and <laughs> kneecapping materials.
1: So, <laughs> no, luckily he didn't do anything violent to his, his customers. They were yeah. like verbally abusive, and Oof. the script that they were told to follow on collecting this money was kind of a bummer. They did oh. such asshole thing, like putting little money bags all over their script on how to keep these customers engaged in, in their loan and how to make them understand that it's all their fault, that they didn't understand that these were just fees and they weren't actually paying any principal towards their loans. Um, And that type of behavior kind of bums me out that that was somehow able to be normalized where there was a bunch of Americans going into work and just being crappy to other humans for the sake of interest payments and and money, and the people that get payday loans, like I said, were like me. Yeah. You're out of work. You are sure. you need 150,
0: 200 bucks to get by. Yeah, just just pay this bill, get this shopping. Maybe like you, you need like I don't know, a pair of socks, whatever it is, like little things, loads of little things, or one bill, and you're set, right? But that 150, 200 dollars turns into like thousands.
1: Yeah, so quickly a hundred and fifty dollar loan with them, if you didn't pay extra, would end right. up being $975. That's fucking insane. That's so messed up. But yeah, it he, really is. he continued to say we didn't do anything wrong. They knew what they were getting into. Um,
0: they're grown people, and oh no, that, that I don't buy that excuse. This oh, they're adults, they knew what they were doing. You can't ever just classify someone as an adult and just use it as a get out of jail free card adults have multiple different facets to their personality and you don't know anyone's specific circumstances mentally physically you know emotionally there are so many different things going on you can't just say they're adults it's their responsibility that is absolute bullshit i completely reject that argument every time
1: it's yeah it's a total cop out because yeah When you're desperate and you don't have a choice and it's like, I need to turn my heat on because it's going to be negative three tonight. Fuck yes. Then you, you go get that loan and you're hooked and there's nothing you can do. And exactly. You just grind on. Anyway, September, 2016, the federal district court judge ordered that uh, Tucker and his other defendants in that case from back in 2012 and 2014 Uh, pay a record judgment of $1.266 billion for deceiving consumers across the country and illegally charging them undisclosed and inflated fees. Good. Um, (laughs) Unfortunately, the Supreme Court, just like a month ago, overturned that award because they believe the Federal Trade Commission should pursue other remedies for recovering the money that's gotten through ill-gotten gains. I guess they want them to do it a different way. So
0: they're they screwing ready? everything up. <laughs> yeah, like, how? What? You're going to, like, put him in a fucking, like, thing above a bucket of water and charge people five bucks to throw, like, things at a target and see if they can get him in the water? Like What else are you going <laughs> to do? Steal still... his shit and give it to people.
1: Well, and they did. They seized his Ferraris, his race cars. <sighs> um his mansions his bank accounts 285 million dollars or so they 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 got back from him um, disgusting of that 117.5 million he failed to report in his income in 2009 and 2010 <laughs> so that got tacked on to some of his other charges oh, and shit. then in february of 2016 he was indicted and arrested for violations under RICO and no. the truth in lending uh, statutes which is actually on all of the forms the contracts that you sign on these loans it's big yeah. in, in the middle and it seems like hey mm-hmm. you know 95 bucks 95 bucks and i'm done um yeah but then there's the it's fragmented x exp- and it's not even all together it's like here's a <sighs> sentence that is that Says what uh, you're going to be getting into, and here says some requirements. And down in
0: this part of this paragraph over here, oh, that's it, fucking bullshit. It's, you can't have a treasure map of you know... oh, yes, yeah, six different
1: spots on their contracts. Oh, that's fucking <laughs> ridiculous. Come so, on. So, um, that truth in lending, mm. Rico, mm. and 14 counts of making illegal payday loans and racketeering. Good. the charges that got to him by December of 2017 they added mm. those false tax returns yeah, and then started seizing stuff mm-hmm. and he went to trial and he's appealing and then he's yeah. in trial and while this is going on his brother's stuff is seized as well and this is the Good. saddest part of the entire story is that his brother actually committed suicide mm. um, when the convictions were coming in and i feel yeah. like cuz he knew they were wrong
0: right, and
1: yeah sometimes it's difficult to deal with that guilt when it finally comes crashing down on you i yeah. know i've had a lot of time cuz i actually worked at a payday loan place as well so i was on the other yeah. side
0: yeah so you you like you you saw how murky the waters were from the from the water essentially yes. um it's really sad you know you were talking about his brother committing suicide um you remember the Bernie Madoff thing? I don't know if have we covered Bernie Madoff. I don't know if we have. We uh, covered Enron, yeah, which were was closely tied to Madoff. bouncing around, yeah. Which
1: I totally forgot. Random off-topic. Back on the dropout, I totally hmm. forgot that her dad was actually involved yeah. in Enron, and when that came, up, like, oh, yeah,
0: <laughs> that's right. She was dodgy from the start. Holy shit!
1: Um, uh, yeah. yeah.
0: But the, the uh, so the Bernie Madoff thing, um, his sons were involved in the business, right? But incredibly, he kept all of the dodginess from them. He was just like, right, you run this side of the business, you run this side of the business, and the stuff that was off the books, you know, all of the filtering of other people's money and the theft and the Ponzi scheme and stuff like that. They were just running a business, right? He was running a con that had a business on top of it, essentially to hide it. Um, one of his sons ended up getting. I want to say leukemia or something like that or, or a, a quite aggressive form of cancer that yeah. Um, his other son committed suicide when they found out, because they were all the way along. They were like, dad, we can't believe this is happening. This is terrible. This isn't true. Right. Because they had no idea. They were just so busy doing their end of the bargain of upholding the business. And they got so much hassle from the public who were like, oh, they must have known something. And an investigation, multiple investigations have said they knew nothing. They were just too busy running the business. And one of them's dead now. That's just, that's so tragic when something like that happens. This is a little different from this guy, but still.
1: A, yeah. a little bit different but kind of the same like yeah. when you're messing with people's money and their livelihood mm. and you're screwing people and you know it yeah um yeah Sa- same yeah. same range and that's another sad part of this story is his adopted daughter is interviewed on that dirty money show mm. and talks about how she he's a great businessman and she wants to be like him and he mm. ran a great business and it's like yeah. he was so good at saying i didn't do anything wrong i was just
0: running a business i started to believe him yeah yeah and, and- that's that's the skill of con men is confidence they con- they give you confidence in their words i feel like he lied so hard that he
1: believed that he didn't oh, do yeah. anything wrong he just was you know ruining people's lives that's all yeah it's,
0: it's um. interesting um, you say that because um, sometimes we see situations like this, right? Politicians or businessmen or con artists or whatever it might be, Kanye West. And we see people and we're like, they can't honestly believe this shit, can they? They do. A oh, yeah. friend of mine who will remain nameless, I won't even say what he does, had at the time for a few years worked quite closely with Theresa May in an unofficial capacity, who was then the British Prime Minister before uh, Boris can fuck off. But, you know. Anyway, <laughs> Boris's predecessor, Theresa May, who um, inherited Brexit and had to set everything up, and she just had a thankless task, and she was weird, and, and she was a Conservative, so she's got that problem going against it. Anyway, when he met Theresa May, she sat down. She was very jovial with him. She was very open and honest. She was like, "Oh, hello, yes, nice to meet you," and shook his hand. And they were they were chatting away about what they were going to do at this thing. And then she walked away. It was the first time he'd met her, and he she said, "Oh, you can call me Teresa." And he was like, "Oh, that's that's really nice." Prime Minister just told me to call her Teresa. When she walked away after this ten minute conversation, a lackey came up to me and went, "You call her Prime Minister." he <laughs> was like, "All right." She just told me I could call her Teresa. Anyway, um, so. I, I asked him because he he worked with her, I think, about half a dozen times and like hours and hours at a time. Like spent most of the day with her on, on a, most of these occasions. And I said, what's she like? And he was like, there's a few things you need to know about Theresa May. One, she's really frail because she had type 1 diabetes. So she would go from room to room and she'd just go from seat to seat. Essentially, she just sat down most of the time and um they they were very careful to hide that from the media just how frail this this quite tall woman was and uh the next thing he said um all of her advisors all the people she has around her that aren't elected members of parliament mps stuff like that um they're all from eton they're all deluded rich kids and none of them have any idea what's going on in the real world around them they're all to the man born. they're all born into wealth they go to these amazingly expensive schools and then they don't interact with the the rest of the country they're just upper class i want to do that <laughs> <laughs> live in that bubble of privilege it's like we talk about you know people talk about white privilege this is another level of white privilege right this is like born into wealth it's green privilege yeah it's green privilege it's historic privilege these are people who are like i I came, my my great-great-great-grandfather was part of Henry the Eighth's army or whatever, you know, they inherited their land or shit. Anyway, but the other thing he said, and this is what really got me, I was like, she can't mean the stuff she says, right? And he's like, she believes every fucking stupid word she says. All of that <laughs> ultra-conservative, ultra-nationalistic, all of it, like, we have to cut people's money we have to cut this resource and that resource the well you know we have to all of the stuff that inherited uh, like that they inherited in terms of debt they were like we're going to cut funding for all of this this and this she thought it was the right thing to do and i was like that's insane how can they not see that what they're doing is in the long term going to cause disaster and they're just true believers and that's what this guy is he Yo, probably, yeah. like you said he believes his own bullshit.
1: Well, him and his lawyer, Timothy Murr, were both on that show saying, right. no, he didn't do anything wrong. His lawyer bought into his crap so much that he was indicted on federal charges in Manhattan. Oh. And then, you know, uh, everything came crashing down. 14 counts of rash- racketeering, <sighs> wire fraud, money laundering, the TILA truth and lending thing. Oh, yeah. On September 2018, um, I skipped the wrong spot. Uh, he <laughs> <That's> he, <laughs> he was convicted on those charges and sentenced to 16 years and eight months. And his lawyer is serving a seven-year sentence. <laughs> That's fucking brilliant. Um. Wow! It's, I skipped over so much, like the, no, the no, part okay. where he bought the Rolex Sports Cars series and yeah. bought himself into that. He paid for a reporter oh. uh, to follow him around and interview him on the racetrack after his amateur races. He got himself into America Le Mans series. Sure. He actually raced in the 24 Hours of Le Mans. Oh wow! And came in tenth. That's not bad. Holy yeah. shit. He's decent. <laughs> yeah. Motherfucker can drive. God he damn. bought his way into racing to try and legitimize himself. And I almost wish he would have just gone into
0: racing after he got out yeah. of prison for screwing people the first time. Exactly. It's like, okay, you know, you've got money somehow. Just go into racing. Like that world needs weird. People who are good at business, like because, like you said, he's good at business, just highly illegal. So, like, go into the racing industry, make a good go of it, make it financially viable, and and do stuff like that. The the world of sports is is littered with failed attempts at franchises because people run out of money because they don't plan it properly. If you're a good businessman, the smartest thing you can do is buy a sports franchise and run it properly because it will give you constant income from every different source. And that's really where I think he should have gone because
1: all of the people in his racing life, his his pit crew people, the Mm. team managers, all the people on his racing teams really liked him, said he was a great Mm. guy, was all about business. It was a great place to work. Mm. Except for
0: all of the money came from screwing over poor people. Yeah, I wonder if like part of the reason he's like, I didn't do anything wrong... Is because he's been told, and possibly rightly so, because like people, people, the worst people in the world can be really personable, right? As we'll find out in my thing. Um, but like if you're told that, oh yeah, he's really good at parties, or like he's a really good guy to talk to, oh God, you can really have a really interesting conversation with this guy, or just a really warm person. He's so generous with his money and stuff like if you hear that enough. You kind of don't recognize the other terrible shit you're doing. And you're like, well, that must be wrong. Everyone tells me I'm a good guy. No, you've also been fucking over half of the country at the same time. Right. So.
1: And that's the lesson right here with, with Scott Tucker, uh, American yeah. businessman, racketeer, loan shark, mobless mobster. <laughs> um yeah, if you're going to screw people over, pay attention and, and realize that you're doing and at least be man enough to own up to what you're yeah. doing wrong so that you can learn
0: and not be brutally evil in all yeah. aspects of your life. It, it, insight is such a, an important thing in life. Insight into your yourself, you know, um, and it looks like this guy didn't have that, which is it's a real shame. But 16 years in prison, still gets a mansion he actually it got eat. some time added on here but i didn't have mm-hmm. the time to f- find that um <laughs> so yeah, probably I think he had like 18 months
1: 36 months added oh, okay.
0: on did he smuggle a cell phone in or you know uh i can't find where it's at I,
1: I think it was just more stuff the from right uh yeah. racketeering and and wire
0: fraud and yeah something more than else the they found out he did yeah that, um, that makes complete sense um that's oh, really yeah. Start. When all
1: that went down, all of the 600 employees that he had didn't have work anymore also. So he threw them over, too, in the long run. I mean, yeah. although that was kind of the government,
0: but really. Hit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's really bad when that happens. You know, the people. And again, like we talk about employees who know that they're probably not doing anything great. Like they, they, they've got their own shit to deal with. So, you know, it's not fair for them to have to suffer for this guy's machinations but yeah, that's not so bad. It's it's going to be an interesting score this one because um, this was event- this was an eventuality, right? Like no matter how much, and again we go back to Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos and stuff like that. Like eventually, the bubble's going to burst. When you're involved in something like Enron, like Theranos, like AMG industry, whatever it was, called. services, yeah, services, yeah. Um, You're involved in a business like this, which is inherently corrupt or inherently wrong or flawed, deliberately so, potentially, it's going to end in misery. It's just a question of time. And Mm -hmm. whether it's five years, 10 years, 20 years, whatever it might be, it's coming. And for that alone, like as business, business, good businessmen, and he apparently is a good businessman, good businessmen see these things coming. This is why Warren Buffett is so good at investing. He sees these things coming and that's one of the best things you can have. Best skills you can have as a leader of industry as a titan of industry is seeing the future and where the tide is mm-hmm. going, you know. So he clearly didn't see the future because he got out of prison for doing the same stuff and did it again just exactly. bigger. <laughs> so he's literally just a very effective criminal. That's that's all he is. He is a con man who can't change his ways because it's all he knows. If he was an actual businessman, he would transition into a straightforward line of work where it's not about earning as much money as possible because really that's all he's done. He's like, I need as much money as possible. Mm-hmm. And that's what he was focused on. He wasn't focused on 20-year growth with like a 3.5% you know, annual increase in returns or whatever. It's like, give me the mansions and the Rolexes and the... Fucking Lamar cars and all that, you know? Yep.
1: Yeah. And so. and there was thousands of people that ran legal payday loan places and still yeah. do. They're yeah. not great, but what he was doing was excessive. Seven hundred percent interest.
0: That's disgusting. Anything yeah. anything above this is the question because the finances are so i probably deliberately so so confusing and dull at the same time um, <laughs> yeah, <they are. laughs> you're looking at an interest rate of more than like 10 percent i can really think hard about if you want to get involved in that like my mortgage is tiny and the interest rate is even tinier so like that's about it so like my student loans okay that that's like good debt and stuff but like when it comes to finances if Anything is above ten percent, probably don't do it because the consequences of having to pay back that extra money, it's gonna it it's gonna be far worse than the potential of like paying off whatever it is you want to pay off. Just just think really hard about it. So in terms of scoring this guy, he's in prison, which is great. Like immediately that means like this ain't happening again. This motherfucker is dying there because I know like he's probably quite young, fifty nine. 59, okay, you know, lifespan probably in his mid-70s, 16 years, it's visible, but prison ages people fucking well, very quickly. You know, oh, yeah. a prison year is like five in real life. So um, he's dying in prison. I, I genuinely believe that. I don't think he's coming out like a, a pensioner. Like, oh, I'm still in my 70s. No, he's dying there. Um, so I think in terms of that, financial crime is a really difficult one for me because you are literally taking advantage of the most desperate people. So I'm going to go 84. I think okay, because he has deluded himself into thinking that he's just a businessman, but he clearly isn't everyone else except for his close inner circle knows he did what he did was really wrong. Yeah. I feel like you can't get convicted by a jury. Yeah for of like that much stuff
1: yeah. <laughs> without it's having so done
0: something a little wrong exactly like multiple counts if you're found guilty of all or most of them like at some point you've got to say okay yeah well that one you know like have a little insight right. but he's like no i did nothing wrong well of course you did you did at least something wrong well, balance of you know scale whatever yeah what did you do that
1: this guy that's not going to prison in the same industry maybe that was wrong
0: yeah (laughs) maybe that's where you need to look yeah (laughs) and so that's that's um what was his name it's quite quite Scott Tucker Scott Tucker very very American name um who gets an 84 solid for what is basically a very run-of-the-mill con man who was legitimized for a while oh a good while (laughs) yeah a good few years enough to take advantage of you know, millions of people. So yeah, fuck that guy. Um, my guy is how do I put this? he's less successful than your guy, we'll just put it this way. And also good because he's a he's an Islamic fundamentalist. But um Uh-oh. he is yeah oh yeah. <coughs> um don't, don't worry it's actually quite funny in in places. Um when we think of fundamentalists terrorists what jihadists whatever you want it whatever term you want to use there's a very specific not even image but like a sense that comes over you of the person that might be involved and it's quite intimidating it's quite scary it's quite wow this is a bit intense right that's that's the the feeling you get from the modern day interpretation of islamic fundamentalists it's not always the case um this guy came on my radar a while ago, years ago, and I just, like, I, you know, I, in a John Ronson book called Them, which I would encourage everyone to read. <laughs> it includes Alex Jones, um, uh, David Icke, this guy, a bunch of other, like, super extreme pre- people. And the book is based around the idea that um, extremists and conspiracy theorists the world over hold this belief that there is an all-powerful, secretive group that control the world. And they're usually Jewish in most of these conspiracy theories. Um, And it's a belief that is held by Islamic fundamentalists, conservative politicians, progressive... This person over here is like... Loads of different people hold it. And it's a a kind of a study into why they hold it, who they are, what connections they have, despite the fact they're very, very different from each other and come from very different backgrounds. Mm -hmm. And where are the roots of this this kind of idea of we're all being controlled and it's an interesting conclusion drawn from it but anyway this is he is the subject of this book he's one of the main focus of this book because john ronson spent years with this guy as a journalist on the streets of london this is the story of omar bakri muhammad um shortened to omar bakri for most of this osama bin laden's man in london It's not a title you want, I don't think. It's not. He gets a lot more. (laughs) He gets a lot more titles as time goes on. Um, Omar Bakri Mohammed was born into a wealthy family in the city of Aleppo in Syria. Um, According to John Ronson, Bakri claimed that his family had chauffeurs and servants and palaces in Syria, Turkey, and Beirut. You're going to quickly find out that this man's only real skill is delusional bullshit, if that is a skill. To be honest, it's like I'm hoping it's a skill because that's what's going to yeah. get me there. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's a skill that's Sorry. served me quite well for a long, long time. <laughs> um, so, from the age of five, he was enrolled in the Al Khattab Islamic boarding school, a primary school known as a madrasa that teaches children how to recite the Quran uh, and kind of memorize it by heart and stuff like that. So, it's quite a fundamentalist school uh, for this time in the Islamic world, which you know, before the various revolutions, it was actually kind of quite liberal in various aspects, of it were, like Jordan, uh, Iran, places like this before there were the uprisings were actually quite liberal countries for the most part. Um, this is where,
1: Syria, you said?
0: This is Syria, yeah. Aleppo, okay. the real institutions there, the incredible learning hub of the Islamic world. Um, he studied Quranic sciences, Hadith, which is uh, the sayings of the prophet of Islam and his companions, Fiqh, uh which is islamic jurisprudence no no idea what that is and sirah the detailed biography of the uh, the prophet of islam etc stuff like that so large um islamic training from the age of five that's right it's not even training at that point is it no it's like it's i guess you call it schooling yeah, but it's like on a very specific subject. You yeah. Know, this is the kind of thing that most people would study, like they're like, oh, I'm going to study Islamic like tenets of Islam or something. I don't know what it would be called, but like something like that in university. This is the kind of thing that people choose to learn in further education, not at the age of like five. That's for the Western for people in the Western world, that's very different from our experience of education.
1: Yeah. So. Um,
0: I mean, from five years old to be
1: that in-depth to religious studies, goodness.
0: Yeah, it's it's going to shape your worldview, as is living in, in, in Aleppo in Syria at this time. Uh, again, I, I have to point out, Syria has been a bit cut off, and a lot of that is to do with its interactions with neighbors, largely down to, um I wouldn't say interference, but Henry Kissinger kind of played some of the countries off against each other. And Syria became increasingly isolated in this scenario. Mm-hmm. And that's what drove the current ruling family of this, uh, of Syria into the position they are. They became very paranoid as a result of the kind of the political maneuverings of Kissinger and his crew. So. See, and
1: I think it's stupid little things like that to, yep. to make people feel like there's
0: them. Exactly. They're running. Everything. <laughs> yeah. Because Henry Kissinger at one point nearly was, um, he was a very powerful man. Um, anyway, Bakri joined the Syrian branch of the Muslim Brotherhood as a young man. However, he did not participate in the 1982 Hama revolt against the Syrian Ba'ath Party and the government of um Haifaz al-Assad. So the Al-Assad family are the kind of the ruling dynasty of Syria. Uh, In 1979, Bakri left for Lebanon and eventually moved to Cairo in Egypt, where he studied at um, Al-Azhar University for six months. He left Al-Azhar before he could get a a degree due to disagreements with his teachers. Basically, and this plays into, you know, he probably was quite rich. He's an entitled little prick. Um, (laughs) So... (laughs) an islamic fundamentalist who has a massive ego and is very entitled it's kind of a weird combination but you see it play out in a lot of his interactions doesn't sound dangerous at all no i want this (laughs) give it to me otherwise consequences um throughout his life bakri said that he joined many islamic movements including and i'm going to mispronounce a lot of these wrong uh, Muslims, better you than me well yeah uh, Muslim students Ibad al-Rahman al-Iqwam al-Liha um, Hizb ut-Tahrir uh, according to interviews with Jamestown special correspondent Mahan Abedin Omar Bakri joined um, Hizb ut-Tahrir HT in uh, Beirut and maintained contact with it in Cairo and started a a cell in Saudi Arabia. That's a lot of organizations, right? That's like five or six that he joined in like a space of a couple of years. Like, who... This is the thing with these these kind of cells. Um, I'm surprised he had time to be that hateful in that many different organizations and places at any one time. Like, you'd be fucking tired. Yeah. That like, angry with that many different groups of people at once, you'd be exhausted. That is that's a full time job. Yeah. yeah, that's unless
1: maybe it was like
0: groups like them super groups
1: where they just add and take out members, but they're all really just <laughs> one Crowling
0: wilberries or whatever it was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh Roy Orbison's died. We'll just replace him. Um, <laughs> <so> <laughs> Bakri said that he studied at the University of Um Al Kar in Mecca in the Islamic University of Medina. In 1984, the Saudi Arabian government arrested Bakri in Jeddah but released him on bail. After his arrest, he decided to flee the fuck out of that country because, you know, it's Saudi Arabia. He might not last long.
1: Yeah, didn't so... they just, like, execute 11 people the other day? Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah, that's, oh. like, that's like a... Don't want to get arrested camp. there. Do not fuck around in Saudi Arabia because they may, you know, it may end in lethal consequences. Um, Bakri moved to the United Kingdom on the 14th of January 1986. Later, he traveled to the United States to study English, which seems like an odd move, but okay. Um, He returned to the United Kingdom to assume the leadership of hizb ut tahrir I'm going to, have to slow that down every time i say it and became their spiritual leader he defended the muslim faith in public debates against christian apologists such as jay smith no idea who that is in the uk bakri worked for 10 years helping to build up his ut according to an ex-associate mashid nawaz bakri encouraged its members to engage in vigilantism against non-muslims and muslim women um why are you targeting Muslim women? You What's wrong with you? He what hates like... women. He hates well, I mean, yeah, he hates pretty much everyone as you'll find as time. Oh, as yeah, all, that's right. <laughs> he hates literally everyone. There isn't a specific man. He so in fifteen hate groups. Yeah, like uh, he's like, oh, I'll just like a smorgasbord of hate. I'll just <laughs> a little bit from, oh, I'll dip it this one in that one. Oh, that's delicious. We um, should make
1: him go hang out and maybe he could be the first Muslim white Aryan nation people
0: would. Oh, uh... I, I guarantee this guy would, when you hear what he has to say, that is a distinct possibility for this guy. <laughs> um This is a quote from him. Uh, No, so from his ex-associate, I should say. We were engaged, uh, we were encouraged by Omar Bakri to operate like street gangs, and we did prowl, uh, and we did prowling London, fighting Indian Sikhs in the West and African Christians in the East. What a fucking. Why would you fight a Sikh? I know. They're the (laughs) nicest people ever. They're the nicest people ever, and they carry swords. What the fuck is wrong (laughs) with you? (laughs) we intimidated muslim women until they wore the hijab and we thought we were invincible that's a direct quote from this guy thank god he's an ex-associate it's like gangs in new york only much weirder and grosser and oh fucking hell you know and we're not allowed to comment on it but you know that's that's just horrible and the fact that that was a thing actually you know what the 80s in london that that tracks because there's a lot of uprising in london in the 80s thank you thatcher um it's at this point i want to introduce the main reason i'm covering this guy his okay. association with john ronson and his appearance in john ronson's book them uh i just explained what it was about and this book catalogues the years of interactions with Bakri and um shows the day-to-day life of a british-based extremist it's completely fascinating there is an audiobook out there but um, the one warning with audiobooks, they're all narrated by John Ronson, and he has a very unique voice, and it's not for everyone. So I'm just <laughs> pointing that out there. Um, it sounds a bit like this. I first met Omar Bakri Muhammad shortly after he declared holy war on Britain in 1995. So I, I'm not going to do that. It's fucking exhausting. But that's I... how he sounds for thousands of words. It's It's quite something. Download that right now. (laughs) 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 It's not. It's not like uh, the guy who read the the Harry Potter books. You know that kind of wonderful, calming drone. It's not. It's like it's a northern, slightly high pitched, a little bit camp voice. Um, there were maybe so. This is John Ronson's book now. There were maybe 5,000 of Omar Bakri's followers in Trafalgar Square when he announced that he wouldn't rest until he saw the black flag of Islam flying over Downing Street and the White House. Ambitious, that's that's uh, really wow, nailing your colors to the mass there, buddy. Yeah. What uh, was his plan to get that to happen? Stuff uh, okay. <laughs> Here's where we are flag above back Downing Street. And the White House. In between, stuff happens. Okay. Okay. And you'll you'll find that it involves Coca-Cola bottles as well. So that's uh, there oh, was dear. much cheering. Uh, you you uh, will we'll get to that. <laughs> there was much cheering. The stage had been rented out to him by the local council, from which he outlined his post-jihad version of the UK. He who practiced. Homosexuality, adultery, fornication, or bestiality will be st- bestiality will be stoned to death or thrown from the highest mountain. Now, I'm sorry, um, I know the kind of people that believe this shit. The kind of the kind of people who want to kill the LGBTQI community or adulterers or anything like that are not the kind of people who are going to climb to the top of the highest mountain <laughs> just to throw someone off because they're fucking lazy. Yeah, it better yep. have a ski lift. Yeah, exactly, because hate is the laziest option, and these fucking people hate, and there's no way they're climbing a mountain just to throw a gay person off. It's not I happening. doubt
1: they're going to have the muscle and capacity to oh. throw more than one decent-sized stone. Exactly. So, <laughs> yeah. I, Although, I, if I'm going to go out, I I want somebody to throw me from the highest mountain. Oh, shit, yeah.
0: Yeah, no, I, I, I want to have the majesty of the view. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> also, I'm just like, why is he wearing a flying squirrel outfit? Just don't question it. Just throw me. Just throw me, please. <laughs> uh, Christmas decor. Oh, this, this is, this is, this is, yeah, it's just, ah, yeah. sucker. So <laughs> okay. I love Dick. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, Uh, so this is carrying on from his speech he's going to throw gay people adulterers, fornicators and people who fuck animals off mountains, Christmas decorations and shop window dummies will be outlawed dummies Um, pubs will be closed, boo pictures of ladies legs on packets of pantyhose would be banned we'd still be able to buy pantyhose but they'd be advertised simply with the word pantyhose that's just shit branding yeah, it's a just, little bit. What, plus
1: how you how, know how,
0: what color they are.
1: Exactly. What do they like? look like?
0: <laughs> I know. I need some direction. It can't just say pantyhose, sort of brown. Light <laughs> sort of brown.
1: You know? If you go go pick up a pair of pants and it's just pants.
0: <laughs> yeah. Tan. Tan. <laughs> yeah size I, I don't know uh, yeah and like I know it's, it, they haven't thought this one through um, I, ver- I very much wanted to meet my oh, I'm going to do it Omar Bakri <laughs> and spend time with him while he attended to overthrow democracy and transform Britain into an Islamic nation. It turned out that he lived a couple of miles away from me in Edmonton, North London, in a small, semi detached house at the end of a cul de sac. I got his telephone number from the phone book. He's in the fucking phone book, this guy. That's a horrible <laughs> terrorist. I mean, but he's... fundamentalist. Sorry, fundamentalist. <laughs> he's not a terrorist. Of course not. Um, He called back straight away. There were so many anti-Muslim lies, he said, generated by the Jewish-controlled media, of course. Uh, Rupert Murdoch, by the way, he ain't Jewish. He's a prick, but uh, definitely not Jewish. Um, So much misinformation in the newspaper and the movies. Perhaps this would be an opportunity for the record to be set straight. So, yes, I was welcome to join him in the struggle against the infidels. And then he added, I'm actually very nice, you know. Are you? I asked. Oh yes, said Omar Bakri. I'm delightful. Um at nine a <laughs> terrorist. This is going mountains? I know. And Pantyhose. Some sort of brand. At nine a.m. the next morning. I sat in Omar Bakri's living room while Omar played with his baby daughter. What's your daughter's name? I asked him. It's a difficult name for you to understand, said Omar. Does it have an English translation I asked Oh yes said Omar it translates into english as the black flag of islam Really I said your daughter's name is the black flag of islam <laughs> <laughs> Yes you said Omar Husky got nothing on me <laughs> Yeah exactly yes said Omar really I said there was a small pause you see said Omar why our cultures could never integrate He's lying, by the way. His daughter's name does not mean the Black Flag of Israel. I looked it up. Uh, The Lion King was playing on a VHS video in the background. We watched the scene where the warthog sung Hakuna Matata, the song about how wonderful it is to have no worries and a problem-free philosophy. i struggled with that one. Omar sang along, bouncing the baby on his knee. We always watch The Lion King, he said. It's the only way I can relax. It's the only way I can relax is watching a Disney animated movie. Wow, you, you're getting a window into Islamic fundamentalism here, folks. He watches what? The Lion King every fucking morning. That's um, it's the only way I can relax. You know, they call me the Lion. That's right, they call me the Lion. They call me the Great Warrior the great fighter he's just making this shit up now he's just giving Um,
1: himself nicknames he is they
0: call me this now you've literally just Mm -hmm. thought it's up also um you know i I just uh, the great fighter who also happens to enjoy disney cartoons (laughs) um i just i i really wonder and this is something that i wanted as, as i was writing this down do you think he's ever been to the broadway show do you think the he's Lion ever King? been to the Lion King? Yeah. Do you think he's seen the live action and he's like, oh, Man. people are going to die over this? I am <laughs> declaring a fatwa on whoever made this film. But, like, the, it's so jarring. This guy who has said he will murder gay people, fornicators, blah, 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 blah just loves the Lion King.
1: Yeah, but Hakuna Matata, buddy. Hakuna Matata. It, it's, unless you're gay. No freedom unless you're gay. cares.
0: And then fucking Hakuna off the mountain, <laughs> motherfucker. Um, oh, Omar showed me his photo album. His teenage photographs made him look like a, matin, like a matinee idol. He came from a family of 28 brothers and sisters. Holy shit. Ew. Look, his poor mum. It's like yeah. a little baby factory. That's terrible. That's um, yeah, like a Pez machine. She's just firing him right out. <laughs> yeah his father had made a fortune selling sheep and pigs and cows they had chauffeurs and servants and pal- palaces in syria and turkey and beirut they probably had houses i don't think they were palaces I omar escaped his, uh, my house is my palace my third bedroom <laughs> is my mansion um, omar escaped saudi arabia in 1985 he'd heard he was going to be arrested for preaching the jihad he escaped to Britain. Now he's a big man with a big beard. I love the way John Ronson gives backhanded compliments in this book. He basically <laughs> just called him fat, right? And he's, he's a big man with a big beard. Like he passes it off as like a weird compliment. It's so funny. Um,
1: <laughs> I was thin
0: because I was always worried. He said, yeah, personally, I was always thin because I was over either suffering from the effects of Crohn's disease or I was poor. Worrying never really came into it, yeah. I I was so thin when I was poor. I was so in shape. I actually got
1: really fat when I was poor. But I was really thin all the early poor days. Ah, yeah.
0: There you go. Because when
1: I got to my adult poor days, well, I was poor Mm. of my own volition instead of my parents. Uh, That's when I started, you know, the 99-cent meals and the Mm. processed
0: food and Mm.
1: 316
0: pounds at one point yeah yeah it was it was different for me i i couldn't afford processed food I, I could barely afford to heat my apartment i was so thin that my knuckles went purple from malnutrition Ouch. it was really scary uh, my skin was starting to change color that was that was really weird see um, i think you guys just don't have the the processed junk food that's peddled well, we've to got poor them, people but here It's more expensive so it's like it was easier mm. for me to hang around the market at the close of the day and go like can i have that onion for five pence. Can I have that pepper for five pence? And, like, take it home and fry the shit out of it and just just gobble it down. It wasn't enough calories, but at least it was something, you know, so. Yeah, it was more food than the food I ate. That's probably
1: I ate sawdust and particles and chemicals.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm sure I did as well (laughs) when I was in university. It's delicious. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. It's quite something. Anyway, back to the terrorist who likes the the Lion King. Um, I was always on the run now I live in Britain. I never worry. What's going to happen to me here? <laughs> so I got fat. A leader must be big in stature. The bigger the body, the bigger the leader. Who wants a little scrawny leader? Apparently, the Germans in 1940. Um, Sorry. <laughs> yeah, it's was, it was too, it too easy. It's too easy. Omar's plan for the morning was to hand out leaflets entitled Homosexuality lesbianism adultery fornication and bestiality the deadly diseases i honestly thought it was going to end with my typical sunday morning for a <laughs> second when i was reading out those things would have sold better <laughs> yeah it would have done yeah shit yeah <laughs> oh, God, sorry copy is thinking um <laughs> he said he couldn't help notice my car in the driveway so perhaps i could give him a lift fucking hell oh, just just another thing before we get into this john ronson is jewish so <gasps> yeah Uh Uh-oh, yeah, indeed. That will crop up things. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Okay, I said. I dropped him off near the tube station. I went to park the car. Ten minutes later, I found him standing in the middle of the pavement with a stack of leaflets in his hand. How's it going, Omar? I asked. Oh, very good, he smiled. The message is getting across across that there are some deadly diseases here and there. He turned to passersby. Homosexuality, he yelled. Beware the deadly disease. Beware the hour. Some time passed. Homosexuality! Yelled Omar. Beware! The homosexuals are everywhere. It kind of makes them sound like secret police. And he says it like that. Yeah, like it's scary. Russia. Yeah, they're everywhere. Like they're watching you. They're everywhere. Is that no? A, they're not everywhere. And B, why? Why do you make them sound like they're hiding? No, um, I, don't I expect think it matters if they're everywhere. I suppose. Exactly. Yeah, they're everywhere. <laughs> and. I <laughs> um, expect to see some hostility to Omar's leaflets from the passers-by, but the shoppers and tourists and office workers—and again, this is central London—no one has time for your shit. To regard, uh seem to regard him with kind bemusement, and that's probably the bitterest, bitterest pill to swallow for him. He wants a reaction, negative or positive. He wants to rile people up, and he's just getting fucking ignored. That's that why he came to about. America. Yeah. He was like, "I'm going to learn that <laughs> tactics." Uh, nevertheless, after ten minutes, nobody had taken a leaflet. Beware the hour! There are homosexuals everywhere. Beware the hour! It's three PM. Uh, <laughs> continue Omar cheerfully. By be careful from homosexuality. It's not good for your tummy. That's a fucking weird thing to say. Really? <laughs> Why? <laughs> Why? Bowels? What? I... It's it's not. It's not like really bad Mexican food. I don't know where he's getting that from. Yeah, um, that's but, an odd stretch. Yeah, it'll upset your tummy. Oh, that'll sell some leaflets. Yeah, that'll get people pick
1: it up. <laughs> well, right. I, don't like, I don't like that. I don't no. like that at all.
0: <laughs> upset your tummy? Oh, give me that. Alka-Seltzer. Let me see. Omar Bakri was unlike my image of uh, a Muslim extremist. Then he told me he had a good idea. Just watch this, he said. He turned the leaflets upside down. Help the orphans, he yelled. Help the orphans, Omar! I exclaimed, scandalized. The passers-by started to accept the leaflets. This is good," chuckled Omar. "This is good. You see, if I wasn't a Muslim, I'd be working for how you say, Satchi and Satchi. Fuck off! Those who don't know, Satchi and Satchi is the preeminent advertising agency in the UK. They gave starts to um, uh, what's his name? Blade Runner, Alien. Fucking Ridley Scott. Oh, okay. And okay. Tony Scott. They were making television adverts for the Sachi and Sachi people back in the late mid to late seventies, and then he decided to make Alien, and um, that was that was the end of Brilliant his working idea. on television. Yeah. Um, at lunchtime, Omar said he needed to buy some collection boxes for his regular fundraising endeavours for Hamas and Hezbollah. Nice. You know, got some names. People. Those are some fucking names. Hamas had orchestrated a bus bombing in Jerusalem three weeks earlier, which had killed 11 people. There was a cash and carry just off the ring road near Tottenham, said Omar. That sells very good collection boxes. uh, boxes. Could you give me a lift?
1: (laughs) He's inadvertently engaging in in fundamentalism with him, just driving him around. I know.
0: Okay, I said. So we drove to the cash and carry. Omar sat in the back seat, which made me feel like a taxi driver. That's weird. (laughs) Left, said Omar. Left at the junction. No left. At some traffic lights, I asked Omar where his wife was when I was at his house. She was upstairs, he said. She wouldn't come down until after you left. Uh, What would happen if I had tried to interview her? I asked. I would declare a fatwa on you, said Omar. (laughs) (laughs) Please don't say that, I said. Ha ha, said Omar. Even (laughs) as a joke, I said. We arrived at the cash and carry to discover that the only collection boxes they had in stock were large plastic novelty Coca-Cola bottles. Omar paused for a moment. He scrutinized the collection boxes. He furrowed his brow. Then he placed half a dozen of them in his shopping cart. These are good collection boxes, he said. Very big and lightweight. It seems strange to me, I said that you plan to collect for Hamas in novelty Coca-Cola bottles.
1: For Ah, real?
0: I know. (laughs) Fucking Another contradiction here. Ah, said Omar Bakri, noted terrorist. I'm not against imperial baggage. Sorry, imperialist baggage. Just the corruption of Western civilization. So just cross that on your checklist, folks. Imperialism, good. Corruption as a result of imperialism, bad. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's so the where does that, that fall <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, this guy's all over the map who knows mm-hmm. uh, we packed our stuff into the trunk of my car and I drove Omar to Finsbury Park Mosque that's become a bit notorious in this country in the last 20 years it was a hotbed for um extremism and a lot of the preachers there were either deported I think one of them serving life in prison might even be on death row anyway so yeah big time Um, where he was delivering a speech at a conference entitled Democracy or Dictatorship. Omar was speaking on behalf of dictatorship. Shocker, I know. Um, (laughs) It was my first opportunity to meet some of Omar's followers. There were maybe 500 of them in the audience. Things did not start well. Are you a Jew? asked the young man. "Uh, No, I lied. He apologized. Don't worry about it, I said. (laughs) Omar Bakri was... Fast talking on the podium, as if he couldn't contain the words that needed to be said. He filled the room. He quoted from a letter he'd just received from an old friend, Sheikh Omar Abdel Rahman, the blind sheik. The blind sheik was in jail for life in Missouri for inspiring the first World Trade Center bombing in 1993 the company this guy keeps holy shit
1: yeah that's a, a big
0: name there too he's fundraising big... for big names he's connected to big names yeah. and bad he's a, he's a bit i mean it's not a, an apt comparison but it's a bit like when we learned about um um rick james and oh, how yeah. he's connected to every fucking musician in history
1: oh Somehow, yeah the almond like, brothers the almond was...
0: like fucking all these no, wait. staying at,
1: Nash Rod, Crosby steals Nash, Nash and
0: almost Young. Almost was in there. Yeah, bumps into Jim Morrison while he's sleeping over at yeah. Crosby's house, and shit like that. So yeah. so weird. So yeah, th- this guy is the Rick James of Islamic fundamentalism. Um, <laughs> only you know, let's not compare Rick James to a, a terrorist. Uh, the blind sheik was in jail in Missouri for inspiring the first World Trade Center bombing in 1993. The law of inspiration had been utilized. Uh, sorry. This law of inspiration had not been utilised since the American Civil War. Omar used to eat with a blind sheikh uh, back in Saudi Arabia. After the speech, Omar said he needed to do some errands in town, and could I give him a lift? I agreed. Although I feared I was beginning to cross the line between journalist and chauffeur, you should never cross the line. No way should you cross the line. Never become a chauffeur. Holy shit. (laughs) Um, i'm meeting someone in soho i said so can i drop it drop you off there no 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 he said anxiously it is forbidden for me to go into soho please don't take me there soho would be raised to the ground said omar once the holy war had been won it is important for people to understand these things he said so they will be ready to adapt to the new ways i should i think i owe people an explanation Soho. What's wrong with Soho, Soho, Soho <laughs> <laughs> For the, uh, a lot of people may not have been there because it's not like kind of on the traditional tourist trail of London. Soho is for it's the epicenter of the u k. sex industry. And we're not just talking about like, oh, it's seedy. there's prostitutes there. It's like pawns made there kind of all every kind of sexual proclivity like soho has kind of been the epicenter of the formation or at least the the cultivation of it over the years It's like um, a british babylon basically yeah it's like think of the red light district in amsterdam uh-huh it's basically that right only okay. it's like developed an entire culture because like it's now seen as a a, a really important center for like the liberation of homosexuality and like the decriminalization of homosexuality and like the normalization of elements of sexuality that were forbidden or frowned upon and, blah, blah, blah. and all this, a lot of it started in Soho in the UK. So it's a very important town, but actually a part of London. But if you go to Soho, first of all, um, it's really beautiful. It's quite calm for central London. It's nice, quiet. There's a, a really nice park with, a. Uh, I think it's got a statue of Mahatma um, gandhi in it as well uh but also um i went there with my my wife many many years ago when we were dating uh we went to see a gig there in um a jazz club and before that we had a really i had a really nice chicken kiev really delicious chicken Kiev. It was cheap. <laughs> so like I, I i genuinely recommend you go to soho do not think like omar bakri is about to say soho actually is um have you ever been to Soho? I asked. Oh, no, said Omar. It is forbidden. What do you imagine Soho to be like? I asked. There are naked women everywhere, he said. Naked women standing on street corners. This is something that I never get, right? Why the corner? Why is the corner so scandalous? Why is it seedier than the crossing or, or the pavement? or What is it about the corner of streets? It's the edge of the crossroads? Ah, uh, yeah. I don't know. I, I, I don't, don't know what place to... where there's naked women everywhere that sounds naked fantastic. women on every street corner it does sound fantastic but also like no why would you ever think that how is he how is he this deluded that there are, he thinks that naked women can just walk around in public like that's a crime that's yeah, that's so. indecent yeah. exposure in this country you go to jail for that shit so um we got to talking about the word fundamentalism Omar said it would have been redefined. It has been redefined by the infidels of the West as a pejorative term. You use it as an insult, Omar said. Turn left, please. Uh, But surely... (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it. But surely you're you're a fundamentalist, I said, in the sense that you live your life by the rules set down in the Quran. This is true, said Omar. The Quran rules every aspect of my life. Apparently, the Lion King is in the Quran now. Uh um, no, not know No, nah, well, there's a passage <laughs> that we all need to read. Uh, not Aladdin, though. Fucking hell, no. <laughs> um, it tells me how I eat, how I sleep, how I fight, and even how I will die. No, it doesn't. Omar paused. You know, he said, the Quran even tells me which direction I must break wind in. There was a short silence. And which direction do you break wind in? I asked in the direction of the non-believer omar said the direction of the non-believer omar laughed heartily for some time he then slapped me on the back jesus christ he just Um, runs around
1: nesting people that's that's a dick
0: (laughs) it's like an extra level of dickness right there he's farting on people what an absolute monster Um, ok said omar as I pulled up near Piccadilly Circus, thank you very much. Goodbye, John. As I drove away, I gave a little whore, I, I gave my horn a little beep and mouthed the words, "I'll call." Like he's just finished a date. Um, <laughs> as, the mouths progress, as the months progressed, I found my life becoming increasingly determined by Omar's whims. If you turn up late, he often said, "I will give you sixty lashes." <laughs> On many occasions, Omar would telephone me and get, uh, and call me over urgently. I'd cancel nights out with my wife and drive over to discover that he'd forgotten all about me and taken the train to Plymouth or Nuneaton or, or to his secret jihad training camp near Crawley. Uh, <laughs> I, <laughs> that's amazing. That's messed up. I know, I know. And it's like, it's Crawley. It's so fucking am- amazing. That's like saying, my secret jihadist training camp near Pittsburgh. Uh, it's just like it doesn't work, you know? Uh, I sometimes felt I was getting a unique insight into what it would be like living under Islamic rule with Omar as Ayatollah. Time passed, and it was then it was January, the first day of Ramadan. For months now, I'd been asking Omar to take me to his secret jihad training camp in Crawley, an anonymous commuter town near Gatwick Airport, which seemed a rather incongruous location for a jihad training camp, Finally, he agreed. We were picked up at Crawley Station by some local, uh, some young local followers. These were people I'd never seen before. Omar said that in every town and every city in the country and many towns abroad, there were clusters of his supporters. Mm. Yeah, there's that word. Um, clusters, cluster. It sells, maybe. Uh, when you <laughs> put those people together, said Omar, you have an army. Oh yes, he continued. There's a day when military struggle will take place in the UK. Jihad. It's called conquering. One day, without question, the UK is going to be governed by Islam. It's amazing that he thinks this was ever going to happen. The Muslims in Britain must not be naive. They must be ready to defend themselves militarily. The struggle, as I always say, is a struggle between two civilizations. The civilization of man and the civilization of God. Is he suggesting that he's god or that all, the, all uh, the, of his people are gods that's blasphemy does um, think he's mormon i know what well, the fuck <laughs> you sorry. find something buried and you now get to marry everyone that doesn't work um we were, we're all gods we're all gods <laughs> hooray easy <laughs> life. uh we were i don't get to pay taxes i am a deity we were driven to the jihad training camp a well-stocked sorry <laughs> i've just seen this sentence a well-stocked gym in a scout hut in a forestry center fucking hell he's in a scout hut in the middle of a fucking forest like like the boy scouts yeah <laughs> doing jihad yeah right, right. here's your badge <laughs> this is for handling an ak correctly Do um, they have archery and and boat? yeah uh, learning um, how to boating? light a fire yeah they camp overnight They experience the wonderment of nature and then they declare the death of Western civilization. His
1: training camp is the scouts. It's
0: the scouts hut. (laughs) (laughs) Holy shit, that's so fucking embarrassing. Snow lay on the ground. Inside a young man wearing boxing gloves was beating a punching bag uh, and Omar immediately instructed him to focus his assault On the head, he said. That's it. The head. Easy, easy. Okay, stop now. Rest, rest. You killed him. You killed him. The group laughed and I laughed too. (laughs) This is so surreal. I was standing in the head. Punching him in the head. He's dead. It's okay. You can rest now. I was standing in one corner with my back against the wall. I found the situation slightly uncomfortable and then, up a pro of nothing, Omar made an announcement to the group. Look at me, he said. Here I am, with an infidel. John, Omar paused for effect, is a Jew. What a dick! Oh, I know. Brought him out to a fucking scout hut with a bunch of fundamentalists, and now he oh. does that. There was an audible gasp, followed by a long silence. Of all the locations in which Omar have uh, could have chosen to disclose this uh, sensational revelation, a packed jihad training camp in the middle of a forest was not the place I'd hoped for. I found myself searching for the fastest path to the door. Are you really a Jew? Someone eventually someone said eventually. Well, I said lightly. Surely it's better th- to be a Jew than an atheist. There was a silence. No, no, it isn't. A <laughs> of voice in the crowd. Fucking hell. When did you know I was Jewish? I asked Omar from the beginning. He said, I could see it in your eyes. Why didn't you tell me? Fuck off. He just looked him up. This <laughs> is quite cool Jewish. I know. Yeah. <laughs> well, I said, yeah. Why didn't you tell me? Well, I said, you know, Um, are you ashamed to be a Jew? Said Omar. You deny it? No, I said. I'm not offended that you're a Jew, said Omar. We are all Semites. If you were Israeli, if you were Zionist, that's a different matter. But what offends me is that you hide it. You assimilate, that you have no pride. I am proud, I said unconvincingly. But of course, Omar was right. I should have told him. Assimilation, tutted Omar. Integration. These are the worst things of all. Be a Jew. Fuck. What? I know. know,
1: Assimilation and integration are the best things. It's going to make humanity continue to exist. (laughs)
0: Yes. (laughs) Integration is how we've survived this long. It's how we continue to survive, not by isolating ourselves. Just so you know, John Ronson made it out alive and just quickly got the fuck out of there. Smart man. Um, he continues to write amazing books to this day. In the years that followed my time with Omar, he sporadically made the papers calling for fatwa this or fatwa that, reaffirming the fatwa on Salman Rushdie after Iran had lifted it. What a bell Um, But he also began to seem increasingly an- anachronistic at spent force. And that would all change during the week of the September the 11th, 2001. So this is all pre-9-11. The first sign that Omar had decided to initiate his own endgame came in the form of a press release he posted on the website on September the 12th. It read, The final hour will will not come until the Muslims conquer the White House. As America declare uh, war on 1.5 billion Muslims worldwide, what is your duty? Omar then then began to give uh, a series of newspaper interviews in which he spoke of his delight at the attacks. Oh, wow, he told the Daily Mail. The United States has come under attack. It's exciting. The fucking Daily Mail readers would have ate that up. They just... mm, 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 mm. Daily Mail is an extreme right-wing newspaper that pumps old people full of fear. It's fucking horrible. So, yeah, they'd have absolutely loved that. A number of his British followers joined the Taliban. At least three were, in Omar's words, martyred because of it. The Conservative leader leader, during an emergency session of Parliament called for a change in the law so Omar could be deported. Scotland Yard arrested Omar, and they released him. He'd committed no crime. This is what a democracy looks like. I phoned Omar on the evening of his arrest. I expected to find him in a defiant mood, but he seemed a little scared. This is so terrible, he said. The police say they may deport me. Why are people linking me with bin Laden? I do not know the man. I've never met him. Do people say I am bin Laden's man in Great Britain? Uh, Because you've been calling yourself bin Laden's man in Great Britain for years, I said. Oh, John. (laughs) (laughs) It's your fault, you dumbass. But I didn't mean it. I was just saying things. (laughs) Oh, John, said Omar. I need you now more than ever. You know I'm harmless, don't you? You always said I was laughable, didn't you? Oh, John. Why don't people believe you when you tell them I'm just a harmless clown? Of course, someone who's a clown isn't always harmless, I thought about Omar uh, when I watched the World Trade Center fall to the ground. Had he been a monster all this time, masquerading as a friendly buffoon to fool uh, guileless liberals like me? I wonder if he duped me or worse, if I duped myself someone once told me that i suffer for the great liberal misconception from the great liberal misconception that everyone is basically good underneath i'd argue instead that most people are a mix of good and bad and that i see that we that to see ourselves in them uh, is better than seeing them as inhumane something that is impossible to recognize but i have to admit there are moments when I think I went too far in befriending Omar. You fucking think, John. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> if you hear this, John, we love you, but Christ alive. Uh, the last time I saw him in person was in 1996. It had been a year since he bought his novelty Coca-Cola Hamas collection ca- boxes from the cash and carry. They were full now. A lot uh, of loose change and 50 pound notes. Jesus. There was wow. a cheque for £5,000 in one me, That's that's a really stupid... Real? gonna fund. Well, if you're going to fund fundamentalism, I don't think writing a cheque is the smartest way of going about it, to be honest. I think funneling that shit might be smarter. Omar and his deputy, Anjum, who would later be called Anjum Chowdhury, who is Iles, I think he might also be in an American prison now, were taking the collection boxes to the bank The money would be converted into foreign currency and shipped off to the Middle East, where it would be used to fight against Israel. Omar had some business to finish. Anjan packed the the bottles in the back of his car. Then he remembered that he'd left his coat inside. He said, could you guard the money for a moment? I won't be long. Okay, I said, John Ronson, thinking he could set fire to the fucking car and just be done with it all. <laughs> Anjum disappeared and I was left standing guard over thousands of pounds money that would go to ki- to Hamas to kill the Jews in Israel for a while I, I stood there I, know.
1: I can't help but feel like I would have just drove away with it yeah, yeah. I'd have been I been like, did,
0: I just <laughs> it the river fuck that for a while I stood there and what was I doing guarding money that would be used to kill the Jews and then I understood that I had to take the money I had to reach into the car Grab the Coca-Cola bottles and make a run for it. Good on you, John. This was my responsibility, my duty. I had an obligation to do this. I had the strength to carry two bottles. How many lives might that save? Jesus, that's dark. Omar and Anjum were inside. The car was unlocked, but I didn't do it. Of course, I just stood there. And then Anjum and Omar returned, thanked me for my help, and took the money to the bank. In 1996, Bakri split. So that's... um, that's the end. That's the end of John Ronson's account. Um, I'm gonna carry on with the rest of the shit, but I just have to ask you now, what do you think of his interactions with Omar Bakri at this ah. point in the story? Shit, his his involvement and his help yeah.
1: kind it's... of made him an accomplice in, Pretty much. in the thing that he did.
0: Yeah. This is this is the the line you walk as a journalist is you are not supposed to interfere. In the process of documenting your subjects, mm-hmm. but there's a point at which I think you probably have a responsibility to do something, and I I feel like in that moment I, I I understand why John Ronson didn't do it. Right, it's that moment of action. Everyone thinks I'd be a hero. I'd like, and like you said, I'd drive the car, and I'm like half of it's jokingly right because also there's the intimidation factor. There are two Islamic fundamentalists inside who are funding stuff after 9-11. That's kind of scary right there. So A little bit, you know, yeah. Yeah, so anyway, I don't think John Ronson needs to worry. People had their eye on um, Anjum Chowdhury and Omar Bakri, so I'll just get to that in a second.
1: Well, yeah, I, I say that I would have jumped in and drove the car. Um, I probably would have because I've done dumb stuff like that <laughs> before anyway. Um, just I, because I think, it's like, uh I can't now now mm-hmm. I served as a driver for yep. a, a fundamentalist and crossed that line yeah. and now I helped him guard his money to ensure that it got to effectively do yep. what it was supposed to do exactly. now I'm part of the damn cell
0: mm-hmm. basically at that point you are you're on the inside mm-hmm. I, I I it's it's an interesting point you make there this is this may be a sweeping um statement and maybe sweeping generalization but I feel like Americans will be more likely to get in the car and drive away and take the money than British people would because we've still got this kind of like oh but that's rude sort of mentality, it's like you can't do that that's there's a person, you know this is not the done thing, it's like no burn the fucking car down and yeah. you know, maybe call the police at the same I'd time I'd have kept the money though, I mean yeah that check for £5,000 <laughs> was pretty good go to a payday lender, it's free money even if you're getting taxed on it Right. So, <laughs> um so in nineteen ninety six, Omar Bakri split with his terrier over disagreements on policy, style, and methods. He declared that Al mujahirun was an independent organization and continued as its emir until two thousand and three. Um after the september the eleventh, two thousand and one attacks in the United States, Bakri praised the attackers as magnificent, which is a, an odd choice of words, even for a, a, a an Islamic fundamentalist who's like poking people. It's like react. Is it maybe he got it from Lion King? Maybe he did. It's yeah. magnificent. It's a circle of life. Um, <laughs> he began to support the the theology and philosophy of Al Qaeda. Yeah, he's just a fucking edge lord at this point, isn't he? Bakri said that he had uh, become a Salafi Muslim. Media outlets and the British Muslim and British Muslims criticised him for his open support of various international jihadist organisations. On September the 13th, 2001, Bakri told the Daily Mail again, when I first heard about the attacks, there was some initial delight about such an attack. I received a phone call and some and said, oh wow, the United States has come under attack. It was exciting. The fucking Daily Mail just loved interviewing extremists and scaring old people is really right. not right you know that i just comes... realized something here too what's that
1: uh osama bin laden's like a tall skinny dude and he was saying that
0: skinny dudes are horrible leaders maybe that's yeah. why it took so long to join al-qaeda you've got to be a fat man to be a <laughs> leader <laughs> Sorry, all the best leaders in history were fats no that's not right um anyway yeah, that's a good point, actually. He was slagging off, and maybe that's why he wasn't his friend. You know? yeah, he slagged him yeah. off, they'd falling out. You called me skinny, you prick. <laughs> um, according to the Times, Bakri was left alone by British law prior to 2005, despite um, actions such as in- issuing a fatwa containing a death threat against President Perez Musharraf of Pakistan, because Bakri, who acts as something spiritual leader insisted that his followers obey a covenant of security which while encouraging terror abroad forbade them from carrying out attacks in Britain and I'm not sure I trust the times on this one not because of the story itself and the fact that the times are super dodgy as well but also because they seem to genuinely believe that law enforcement were not watching him like a hawk which is really fucking naive actually so you know I guess they were probably told not to say anything, but they must have known that he was under surveillance at this point. You know, Finsbury Mosque yeah. was... After 2002, every Finsbury Park Mosque open-air thing was... There were thousands of people there, including members of the security service, in hiding. So right. Yeah. So they must have known. Anyway, in November 2004, Bakri disbanded his group, saying that all Muslims should unite together against a hostile West. Three months later, Bakri said this covenant security was no longer in force, having been violated by the British government. Experts note, according to the Times, that the July uh, London bombings followed four months later. Hmm. Wonder if he's got anything to do with that. The same Hmm. article reports, The Sunday Times has identified more than a dozen members of ALN, that's his group, and uh, who have taken part in suicide bombings or who have become close to Al-Qaeda and its support network, included Mohammed Naeem Noor Khan, a computer expert now in a Pakistani prison, uh, Zishan Siddiqui from Hounslow, West London, Bilal Mohammed from Birmingham, and Azifi Hanif. Bakri received an estimated £250,000 in state benefits while claiming asylum in the UK since 1986. Now, after he left the country in 2005, he was banned from ever entering the country again. I genuinely believe his asylum claim, this is going to be an interesting thing, I genuinely believed that if he was going around Saudi Arabia declaring jihad on any fucking person he felt like, that eventually he was going to be killed. So I completely believe that he needed to get out of Saudi Arabia. I just, you know, he probably, he's a bit of an agitator. Go on. You got, you got something on the edge. It's, it's, it's again, it's that, that whole thing.
1: um, It's one of the characteristics or, or, uh, I don't even know the right word for it, but the, yeah, the asylum was real and they probably would have killed him. Oh yeah. For sure. Um, good but <laughs> at the same time <clears throat> yeah yeah you don't want somebody getting killed so you feel like yeah. you gotta help people even if they suck i know and, and that's kind is... of a good person i think you help people yeah. even if they suck rather than i know this is bad but it's legal so i'm gonna do it anyway yeah i know it's
0: like in, in a sense it does make me proud in a weird way that my country Uh, which at this time was run by New Labour, so it was a slightly left-wing government, although not really, because Tony Blair ain't left-wing, is that um, they were willing to accept people who were genuine asylum seekers, no matter how dangerous they were now, obviously. We have learned that since then, there are mechanisms in place that monitor the activities of these people, and GCHQ, which is the British like CIA or FBI, whatever it is, they're very, very good at monitoring internal cells and we don't typically have any terrorist incidents other than occasional like london bridge incident with like a car or stabbings and stuff we don't really get bombings or or mass shootings don't really get anything like that and a large part of that is because of stuff like omar bakri and anjum chowdhury and all of these extremists and their preachings there is a mechanism in place that watches them but we still allow them to come into this country and be free and despite right. the fact that they use that freedom to spread hatred and bile and blah, 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 it's a democratic country and you cannot draw the line in that situation. You just be careful. You make sure right. that they are watched and you make sure that, you know, they don't attempt to destroy the mechanisms. But you have to let these people in because it's the right thing to do. Ultimately, right. you plus know? it
1: gives you the opportunity to like they get the opportunity to yep. feel that freedom. To live exactly. in that way, they might be like, hmm, maybe all this hate sucks. Maybe yeah. some of this freedom
0: and carefree living in Akuna Matata is the way to go. Exactly. Eventually, you know, even if it's one person, say five fundamentalist believers come into the UK and they're, they're dead set against the West. But actually, if they experience the better parts of that society and they see the you know, obviously there's definitely lots of shit wrong in the UK and has been for a long, long time. But if they see the balance of things compared to the fact that they might have been murdered in Saudi Arabia, I actually feel like there is a mellowing effect potentially on these people. And I, I really do hope that's the case because, uh, an, a truly integrated democratic society, it's one of the greatest things and to be live to be able to live in a peaceful world. Mm-hmm. It's it's, you know we've both experienced weirdness in the world it's such a to be able to sit down and go oh thank god you know yeah it's, it's a really great feeling and everyone should be allowed to experience that no matter who they are or where they come from
1: and once anyway, you experience it yeah
0: it's life changing yeah, exactly it, it really is the easy chair is a wonderful place to sit <laughs> um Okay, so now let's move on to, from that wonderful notion, to alleged ties to terrorism. Uh, British newspapers have called him the Tottenham Ayatollah, which I fucking love, despite him identifying as Salifi and the title Ayatollah being linked to the Shia um, epitaph. There's more Uh, subgenres than punk. I know, yeah, there's a lot (laughs) going on there. Uh, Former Conservative MP Rupert Allison described him as a terrorist who believes in planting bombs, and blowing up women and children in israel i mean that's true uh roland jacquard a french ex- expert on islamic uh, on islamic terrorism said that every al-qaeda operative recently arrested or identified in europe had come into contact with omar bakri at some time or another damn that's a phew, webs everywhere yeah Internet broadcasts now. In January 2005, the Times monitored live 90-minute internet lectures from Bakri in a chat room in which he told listeners, I believe the whole of Britain has become a dal al-harb, land of war. The kufar non-believer has no sanctity for their own life or property. He said Muslims should join the jihad wherever you are and told a woman... She was allowed to do a suicide bombing. Holy shit. In another broadcast, he said Al-Qaeda and all its branches and organizations of the world, that is the victorious group, and they have the emir, and you are obliged to join. There is no need to mess about. Two days later, in another broadcast, he said that dead Mujahideen are calling you and shouting to you from distant places. Al-Jihad, Al-Jihad. They say to you, my dear Muslim brothers, where is your weapon? Where is your weapon? Come on, the jihad. Fuck me. I know. Andrew Dismore, a Labour MP, claimed that with these words, he may well be committing offences under the Terrorism Act and other legislation. I'll be raising this immediately with the Home Secretary and the Metropolitan Police. Next section is the financing of Mujahideen. On the 24th of October, 2006, British security officials arrested Omar Bakri's son, Abdul Rahman Fostok, at Heathrow Airport and seized £13,000 that he attended to deliver to Bakri in Lebanon. He'd moved to Lebanon at this point. He'd moved back home. The money was held under the Proceeds of Crime Act, pending an investigation. But Fostok was allowed to board his flight. Responding to this, Bakri said, I am not expecting any problem with the money. But if I do not get it, there will be trouble. I will take action because it is my property. God says you must do all in your power to make some uh, to get something back. If it is taken from you, even if it costs you your life, they will pay with fire. Really? Yeah. I mean, like, is that like a new credit card? Yeah. Oh yeah. oh it's a festival. He's talking about the festival. <laughs> Shit.
1: Pay with their tickets to the fire
0: fest. Yeah, those fake plastic fucking things. Uh... Um on the thirty-first of January two thousand and seven, British police arrested nine suspected terrorists who were allegedly planning to kidnap, torture, and behead a British Muslim in the army, all of which would be videotaped and later broadcast on the internet. The soldier internet. had been I know <laughs> The soldier had served in the war in Afghanistan, um, but had returned home to Britain on temporary leave. On the 4th of February, secret recordings of Bakri Muhammad um, emerged in which he calls for the attack. Bakri told listeners, when you meet infidels, slice their own necks. And when you make the blood spill all over, the enemy becomes so tired. Now start to take from them prisoners, then free them or exchange them until the war is finished. Uh, ver- uh, verily, they remained the sunnah of removing the head of the enemy. Oh, just it goes on about removing heads and swords and bodies and shit. He previously called for a kidnapping terrorist attack in 2005. In another incident, he said he hoped uh, somehow uh, would capture British Muslims who are in the army over there. He said that a uh, Baslin-style attack is all right if children are not killed. Oh, sorry. Not deliberately killed. Oh. Yeah. Not deliberately killed. Yeah. They're fine. It's okay if they die accidentally, but you know, don't deliberately kill them, you monster. Does this
1: guy think that the
0: non-believers are like outlanders or I
1: do. Off with their heads.
0: I know. And like, uh, uh, off with their heads, and also the women are naked on every street corner, but not on the middle of the road, on the corner. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the corner that's the dodgy part arrests and conviction in lebanon so it's time for a future television interview Uh, interviewed Bakri, sorry, on the 11th of August, 2005. Bakri said he did not have ties to Al-Qaeda, calling it a media creation, and said he did not intend to return to Britain. During the interview, Bakri said, I left Britain on my own accord, though I have not been accused of anything there or in Lebanon, but the London attacks are the reason I have returned to Lebanon. Yeah, I bet they fucking are. According to the media reports, Lebanese police arrested Bakri as soon as he left the building after the interview. Police... (laughs) The <laughs> police <laughs> later said the arrest was a routine arrest to determine his reasons and his residency in Lebanon were legitimate. No, he's just on holiday uh lebanese (laughs) information minister gazri aridi later said bakri was arrested as a precautionary measure the british ambassador to lebanon james watt said we had not requested for his arrest nor for his extradition as far as i'm concerned this is a very simple story it's a lebanese citizen who returned to lebanon and has been arrested by the lebanese police we have nothing to do with it it's not in our place to comment on what's happened in mid-November 2010, Bakri was sentenced to life in prison uh, in Lebanon in a terrorism case that he claimed to know nothing about. He was subsequently released on bail when witnesses who testified against him withdrew their testimony. I wonder you why. Yeah. look <laughs> <laughs> okay, hell. That is let, bad. They let
1: terrorists out on bail?
0: They t- who gets released on bail when they threaten a terrorist attack? Across uh, multiple parts of the world, That's but if he pays,
1: we'll get him. He'll be okay. He won't do it if he knows he's gonna come back to jail. Yeah,
0: let's get him a really big bond. Right, that'll <laughs> stop him from running. After his release, he was reported to be living in Tripoli. In April 2014, his home was raided by Lebanese security forces because of his alleged involvement in fighting between the areas of Al White community and the local Sunnis. He fled the city and the Lebanese authority announced he was wanted for endangering national security. In May 2014, he was arrested in the city of LA. And in a press conference, the Lebanese interior minister alleged that Bakri has contributed in every aspect in supporting terrorism. I mean, yeah. Basically, why was he living free? In October 2014, Bakri was ar- uh, sentenced to six years in prison with hard labor by a Lebanese court for founding a Lebanese affiliate of Al-Qaeda-linked Syrian terror organization group Al-Nusra Front and of building a, ter- a training camp for Nusra fighters in uh, Lebanon, probably in a scout hut in the middle of the <laughs> forest. <laughs> um
1: uh- you better be careful with that hard labor. He's going to get skinny and then he can't be a leader. Yeah,
0: he can't be a leader anymore. If he's small and skinny. Oh, my God. Who leads small and skinny? The following year, Napoleon, the following year, two of Bakri's sons were killed fighting in the ranks of rival extremist group, the Islamic State. Uh-oh. The first, Mohammed, was killed in Aleppo, Syria, and the second, Bilal, in Salah al-Din province in Iraq in 2015. And that is all I have on Omar Bakri, uh, uh, Mohammed uh, Osama bin Laden's man in London. What do you make of the tale of Omar Bakri? I have it's, so many questions. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I was like when I was reading. I was like, "What is this guy? He's bad at everything as well." Like, yeah. Well, and then here's another question that
1: I have though. Yeah. How did he get asylum from Saudi Arabia in Britain when he's
0: Lebanese? Why wouldn't he just go home? I know. They're gonna kill I, me here. I, I'll go I, home. I <laughs> get well, yeah. I wonder <laughs> if. And I mean this is just conjecture, right? The 1980s in London. Um, there were a lot, there was a lot of kind of um it was seen as a really multicultural city despite the the kind of political upheavals and the riots and stuff that were happening. So I guess the proliferation of media around it being like you know a lot of multi uh, multicultural area a lot of different areas people moving you know from different countries former members of the british empire to london i wonder if that influenced his decision but also the fact that we have and had at the time free healthcare and he would have been able to get various Unemployment benefits and, you know, uh, as- you know, money to maintain the lifestyle. And he would have been given mm. housing for free, you know, so. How pissed off do you think I got to make my government to get asylum over there? I know. Just like really <laughs> piss off the right person, right? Like, um,
1: this guy sucks. And he yeah, was nice he to the Jewish guy and made him drive yeah. him around. But that's really just using yeah. the
0: reporter to exactly. contribute to his cell organization. Exactly. And like this whole thing about, oh, the, the infidels and blah, 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 He's fine with someone he knows is Jewish driving him around so that he can do all of this shit, yeah? So, Dude, where's he, the line?
1: Yeah, he was farting. That's why he sat in the back. <laughs> he <laughs> he was, farting, was sitting in the back seat. Why do you keep it. turning
0: around, Omar? <laughs> 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 why do you keep pointing your ass at me while I'm driving? <laughs> uh, um, yeah. Just an awful person really horrible the
1: amount of hate groups he was in yeah plus the shady london bombing
0: probably was his fault thing he was involved (coughs) in at least some like i think it was a lot of it was influence so like he had a profile he was influencing people's decisions he was using specific words and then boom four months later you've got the london bombing right hundreds of people so
1: yeah it's I don't know. It's like having a rally in Washington and using specific words and saying things, and then all of a sudden you got a group yeah. of people that do some crazy shit. And then going, oh, sure, it's
0: my fault. What the fuck are you talking
1: about? <laughs> <seeing> my emails <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> um, So, yeah, death, hate, bad stuff.
0: He's such but a Eating up Sikhs.
1: Well. I like Sikhs,
0: though. Yeah. Um. I have a lot of Sikh friends. I've known a lot of Sikhs in my life because, you know, the there's a very diverse in the parts of the UK I've lived. There's a big, like, Asian community in in the West Midlands, and I just I've never met an angry or miserable or upset Sikh in my yeah. entire life. I've known dozens of them. It's weird. So they've all just been cool that. to me. So yeah, yeah. And like, I I don't get it. I I think it's just hate. That yeah, you would like I'll oh, go and target the Sikhs. So oh, why? Why are you doing that? It's just a group of people that aren't you, basically. They're right. Nothing to do with it. Which but apparently
1: they can be like you, but not you, because oh, yeah. if you're the wrong type
0: of Muslim, you're not cool either. Yeah, or if you're the wrong gender. Fucking well, hell, watch geez. out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you're a woman or or a fan of bestiality, you had better watch out, because this fucker's throwing you off a mountain. I think um, just, okay, just the terrorist size though. Uh, yeah, to get him a score so
1: I can oh, sure, actually yeah. wander off on other things. <laughs> um, <laughs> g- just from being a terrorist, automatically, yeah. uh, fundamentalist, yeah. automatically gets you a 90. Yeah. The number so, of groups that he was in and the fact yeah. that he made a journalist complicit in. Yes. That bothers me. Because I can mm. see how it happened, and I know that, mm. that that asshole did it on purpose. Oh yeah,
0: the manipulation was strong. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So I- I'm going 94 on him. Mm. Solid, thank you. That's that's a very, <laughs> that's a, a, an interesting score, and it, it's it's odd because you know you may get people saying, "Well, you know, he didn't kill anyone," but actually, when we look at the grass roots of a lot of problems, you know, we look at. Um, Midgley Jr., whatever his name is, thing mm-hmm. Midgley Jr., who invented, you know, leaded fuel and leaded paint and CFCs and stuff like He didn't kill anyone, but he knew what was going on. He knew what he was doing. And it led to a lot of death and a lot of problems. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing with the guy who wrote The Turner Diaries and this guy and his protege, Anjum and Chowdhury. They may not have been directly involved in the murder of someone right or a large group of people but they know exactly what they're doing and they are hoping for the worst possible outcome every time yeah and their fingerprints the are all it. over it yeah so i get it you know when you are a terrorist or someone who is completely aware that your actions are going to result in its significant damage to massive groups of people you're always going to be high on our scale if it is, for sure yes Yep. But what, uh, what do you make of his life with John Ronson and the fucking banking oh shit? And the dude the, is
1: weird. Yeah, really weird. Like, he doesn't even know that he, like, he mm. very much so didn't seem like an angry person there. It's no. Almost like, like an internet troll,
0: but like in real life. Yeah. I know. And like, so many contradictions in his, like, professing of a lifestyle and then the way he's actually living right it's so odd Uh, there's there's i mean there are other quotes from this book right there's loads of it ironically there's a section in between the bits that i read where john ronson goes to meet a a conservative politician who's also an author who was dead he was honestly out to get omar bakri uh and the conservative policy was like this these people cannot come here they cannot come to our shores and do this and then john's like so you, you think they should bring the death sentence back, right? And he's like, oh yeah, we definitely should be killing people. Like, what, what do you think about rights for LGBTQ people? He's like, oh no, I don't believe in it. So it's like they're, they're kind of <laughs> two very similar angry assholes in the same sphere. We uh, hate the same
1: shit, but I also hate, hate him.
0: Yes, we <laughs> hate everything, but we 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 like that we hate the same things, but we hate each other. Yes. So, yep. Yeah.
1: yep. It, uh, yeah, It's
0: yeah. I wish I knew more about this guy. I wish I knew what was going on with Omar Bakri now. I suspect he's either dead or in prison. I couldn't find anything about what's going on with Omar Bakri, even in the last like there's nothing on him in the last decade. Like in the last the 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 kind of 2020s, like there's nothing I can find on him anywhere. I I spent a good time. I hope he's chilling somewhere
1: watching Lion (laughs) King without internet or a phone.
0: Yeah, just miles from anybody. Just like get him a little scout hut in the woods, you know. There you go. Give him a VHS copy of The Lion King, and he'll just fucking chill out until he slowly dies. And like, he's just an interesting case.
1: I'm stuck on that Lion King thing, too, because Akuna Matata, like freedom
0: and then fundamentalism don't uh, go together. I know. He doesn't see it. It's so weird. And again, it's the whole like, they don't believe their own hype. Uh, they, they don't. They they believe their own stuff. Basically, is 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 it? They completely buy into it, despite the multiple contradictions around them. So that is Omar Bakri, the the lion, uh, whose daughter is named after the black flag of Islam, apparently. <laughs> um, and and Scott Scott Tucker, yes, is sir. It? Scott Tucker, yes. um, AMG um s- services. Uh, stealing money from people who desperately needed it. He's the reverse Robin Hood, and he couldn't even fucking see it. So I think the lesson for this episode is and it, it seems to be the lesson with every episode, right? But have some insight. like Accept criticism from people outside of your sphere mm. because a lot of these both of these guys didn't, and they didn't see where they were going wrong. I think Omar Bakri probably knew, though. I think he probably knew what he was doing. You kind of have to, I think, yeah. in that field. Yeah. I just think it, so much of it is hate. He's like, okay, the hate's easy. Right. I'll focus in on that. Let's not think about the fact that I hate Western civilization, but I'm watching a Disney film, you mm-hmm. know? So I just, so that's the story. Have some insight, but also, you know, do, do, try not to take advantage of systems that try and encourage freedom despite the fact that you are rallying against them i think that's really
1: wrong. yeah, yeah. So don't use loopholes to be a dick that's the lesson. yes
0: there's the lesson <laughs> don't use loopholes to be a dick there's the lesson for this that's so perfect that's succinct and yeah oh man if we could write a book about don't hey, we use loopholes to be a dick, we should write a book we should write a book we're thinking about writing a book but uh <laughs> um, <laughs> we, we we may come to that um but yeah i think that's that's been our lesson, This is uh, our lesson, our, our episode. This has been <laughs> a long episode. This is getting on for two hours, man. I really enjoyed um, looking into Omar Bakri, because, mostly because of John Ronson. I would recommend that anybody reads, and John Ronson, I didn't give enough background, he wrote The Men Who Stare at Goats. He also wrote be. great movie. He he wrote Frank, which was turned into a, a film with Michael Fassbender and Maggie Gyllenhaal. Did you um, he wrote,
1: oh God, what?
0: Loads of books. A couple of them. He wrote The Psychopath Test, which is behind me on the the bookshelf just now, which is it has the best opening chapter of any book I've ever read in my life. It's amazing. Um, I I highly recommend you read John Ronson's books because they're the kind of things you can read in three days and you'll be like, wow, that was a really easy read. I was fascinated by that. So, yeah, um, go out of your way to read John Ronson's books, but don't go out of your way to take people's money or or kind of declare a jihad on anyone that's really not good so um if you would like to follow us on social media i, I nearly forgot the call to action that was so close um, <laughs> if you would like to follow us on social media if you go to um at history's greatest idiots on instagram or at greatest idiots on twitter and if you would like to become our very first patreon if you go to patreon.com slash history's greatest idiots you can get held of merch and we'll we'll talk to you, and you can help us keep the show kind of going, and and help us earn money because God only knows advertising is not well paying as a podcast. So. And yeah, go
1: yeah go go be a
0: Patreon because
1: um, then maybe I'll start writing my articles again, and you won't have to deal with <laughs> me just free balling it there like that. I actually really
0: enjoyed <laughs> that. I am happy for you to carry on doing that. I really enjoyed the free balling aspect of it. It's something that I would do if I had. Uh, if i didn't have such a massive comp- control complex over oh, yeah
1: it was it was it was hard you know because <laughs> yeah. i'm like mm. but i also really like talking with you and just having yeah. conversations and your input is just entertaining and fun so Thank if i can you, get man. you talking on stuff i'm i'm happy I'm I'm always happy to
0: fill in the silences. Just just as I'm really happy when you fill in the silence when I'm taking a gulp from my drink. But uh, yeah, 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 no, I, I really, make the dream work. Yeah, <laughs> I really I really enjoyed the cooperation. And I re- I really enjoyed this episode. So um, until next time, um, please don't use loopholes to be a dick. That's that's the lesson. Thank you so much, uh, Derek. Would you like to say goodbye?
1: Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening and hanging out.
0: Yeah, and we will see you again soon. Take care now. Bye.